Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. All right, welcome everybody. Good to have you all back here for this seminar. So we've got one of our own this week. We've got Tristan Moss who's come in, but probably some of you maybe don't know him. So he used to be at UNSW Canberra. There's lots of military history things and strategic studies things and came up to us with a DECRA and a Discovery as well, and there's recently won a Fulbright as well, so he's off to go to Washington to go and do his Fulbright in a couple of weeks' time, and works on a sort of dizzying array of different things. But the thing that you seem most interested in engaged in at the moment is space, and so that's what Tristan's going to talk to us about today, this whole question of what Australia is going to do in space, where, when, how, who's going to pay for it, whether or not the rockets will go in the right direction, and, and all of that. So, Tristan, over to you. Okay, excellent. Okay. So today, as Ian mentioned, I want to talk about what I'm focusing on at the moment, which is how Australia justifies going to space and how we talk about going to space. And this forms a part of my DECRA, which is a history of Australian space policy and imagination. So looking at how Australia has constructed its policy around space, whether it has gone there or not more frequently, and then also how we've talked about it, so how we've imagined space in this country. We've had quite a long and varied and, I would argue, complex history when it comes to space. We've done some pretty fantastic things, as exemplified from the rocket being launched out at Woomera, but also we've sort of stepped back from space. So today I want to ask two questions. The first is, how have we discussed this space history? And how do Australians justify going to space, and in particular use our space past to talk about where we might go into the future? And to start, I want to use a specific example and that's WRESat. Can I just ask, has anyone heard of this satellite? No. No, okay, excellent. WRESat, I'm gonna talk about how it's the most commonly known <laughs> example now, as no one said well, they know This is it. the Sam Neill movie, right? Uh, no, that's the dish, that's different. Oh, yeah, I, don't worry, I'll, I will be talking about the dish later. But that's very interesting you mention that. WRESat is Australia's first satellite. It was launched in November 1967, and essentially came about because there were some leftover rockets from testing out at the Woomera rocket range. The Weapons Research Establishment, which is where the name of the satellite comes from, reached out to the University of Adelaide Physics Department and said, hey, we've got a spare rocket, do you want to? And before they even finished the sentence, the Physics Department said, yes, we're on board. And so they designed a satellite in 11 months, which is, by all measurements, quite an impressive achievement for a university department led by a, quite a famous physicist whose name escapes me. But they developed this, you know, they planned it, they built it, they chucked it on the top of the rocket, and they launched it in November 67. And it was successful. It orbited the Earth around 600 times. It studied the upper atmosphere and also the sun's interaction with, with the Earth's atmosphere. And then it deorbited as planned in 1968. So WRESat is used by space advocates and government and scholars as this example of Australia's success in space. It's celebrated by prime ministers when they talk about Australia's sort of space heritage, by people who are arguing for an Australian space program, by people like James Brown, who heads up the Space Industry Association of Australia. Australian Space Agency refers to it a lot. And the newspapers marked the 50th anniversary, as you can see, there's sort of various headlines there. And so there's lots of celebration of the fact that this made Australia about the third country to launch its own satellite from its own territory. It's also been used as an example of where Australia dropped the ball when it comes to space. There's this argument by space advocates that we built this thing, it shows 
that we can. And instead of capitalising on that and develop a, a small satellite industry, the government went and said, no, we'd rather spend the money on renovating offices or what have you, and sort of took a different path. And so it's this idea of a missed opportunity in Australian space. It's, a, it's an example of what might have been. But I would argue, as the annoying historian in the room, that there's another way to see this satellite. So not only, as you can see in the title, not only was it Australia's first satellite, but it was, it's Australia's only satellite that we've ever launched from Australia. We've bought satellites, so Optus runs a satellite, for instance, they're all launched from French Guiana or Baikonur or Vandenberg or Cape Canaveral, but not from Australia, and they're not, certainly not built by us. So in 60 years, we've never launched another satellite. That constant reference to Australia being the third country or the fourth country, and you always see it phrased in that way, shows a little bit of nitpicking because in order to get that sort of moniker of Australia being the third country to launch its own satellite, we have to discount the French, who launched from French Guiana, which we don't count, so it makes us third. <laughs> you can see you know, the sort of parochialism and the playing with the definitions here. But it's interesting, I think, that we talk about it as Australia's first satellite rather than its only satellite. Importantly, this is not just an Australian achievement alone. In fact, it's majority, largely not an Australian achievement. You've got the satellite, which is the little tiny little black bit at the top in the nose cone. The rest of the rocket is American. The leftover rockets were American Redstones, the same that put John Glenn into space, based on ICBMs. The Americans, it was cheaper for them to give it to us than ship it back home. And this wouldn't have happened had we not encouraged the Americans to use Woomera for other ends that I'll get to in a moment. So. There's no way that Australia, Australia certainly wasn't willing to pay for this rocket and certainly wasn't willing to develop one. So the idea of this being Australian achievement is somewhat sort of untrue. But I think this speaks to the tensions in a lot of Australia's space history and the way we talk about space now, the tension between the way it's presented and used to justify certain things and then the sort of quote unquote real history. And just because no one's heard of my main example, I'll give you a bit of a short overview of Australia's space past, because that very much underpins a lot of the rationales and myths, of course, that I'm going to talk about. So Australia's involvement in space really starts with Woomera. It still is the largest rocket range on Earth, you know, developed with very little concern for the Indigenous people there. And a fellow called Geoffrey Gray, not a military historian, but a different historian, has written very interesting things on the Indigenous people of that region and how they interacted, not just with Woomera, but also with Maralinga as well. But this was set up in 1947 as a joint exercise between the British and the Australians to develop weapons, so the weapons research establishment. This is guided missiles. A German V2 was tested there, so the famous vengeance weapons from World War II. But also a lot of testing around the research needed to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, so testing what happened when it re-entered the atmosphere, those sorts of things. Now, it's from that setup and all that infrastructure, which was quite significant, that Australia got involved in its sort of second of three large space activities, which was involvement with the Europeans through the European Launch Development Organisation. Very long story short, essentially the British had an ICBM they didn't want to use as an ICBM anymore. In order to save money, they dragged a whole bunch of European countries together to develop a rocket to launch commercial payloads. So this rocket is like, I don't know if anyone's heard those jokes about how in heaven, you know, the French are cooks, the Germans are the policemen, you know, the British organised thing or something like that, or the Germans organised things, the British are the policemen, and in hell, the British are the cooks, you know, the Italians organise everything and so on and so forth. This rocket, the bottom half was developed by the British, the middle half was developed by the Germans, the top half was developed by the French, the Belgians run the telemetry, the Italians developed the satellite, and the Australians ran the ground stations. 
And so this is a recipe for administrative disaster. And that's what happened, essentially. It sort of fell apart. There's a whole lot more there. But Australia was really only interested in this rocket being developed because someone paid for Woomera. There's a whole bunch of diplomatic cables back and forth between us and the British in which Australia essentially refused much of the British annoyance to pay any extra money. And they stopped talking to us about it because of that. At one point, they refused to answer the cables. So we're interested in, in someone paying for Woomera there. The second involvement, or the third rather, involvement in space is the most famous one, and that's the United States. Australia has hosted more tracking and data relay stations for the American space program than any other nation on Earth, and still has more than any other nation on Earth. So the top is uh, Honeysuckle Creek. That's just outside of Canberra. That dish doesn't exist anymore. It's all been moved to Timbimbilla, the Deep Space Tracking Network. But you can still see that often. You fly past it as you go in to Canberra. And happily, they managed to save the site in the bushfires, but all those hills were burned. And then, of course, Pine Gap and Narangar, which is a picture down the bottom, which is you know, described as the linchpin of the Alliance of America. And the Alliance is very much what is central to this relationship. We are interested in space because the Americans are interested and we're interested in the Americans. Very much all the internal documentation from the government is basically saying, it is in the 1960s, is basically saying, we don't care what they're bringing here as long as they're happy. We're happy to give them land. We're happy to set up something like the, the tracking centre up the top, irrespective of the technological and scientific benefits to Australia. That's a direct quote. So that's all during the 1960s, and that's what we tend to think of as Australia's space activities. But from between 1970s and 2000, put very briefly, it was a lot less interesting for the average person. There was no Apollo moon landings, there was no The Dish, there was no Woomera. But this was a more accurate reflection of how Australia approaches space, which is usually buying things off the shelf. And an example of that is OSSAT, which is being launched from the Space Shuttle in 1985, which is a commercially built communications satellite. And just to sort of speed through, it brings us to today. So the Australian Space Agency was announced in 2017 and created in 2018. And then this year you've seen the creation of Australia's own Space Force, Space Command, and also the development of Australian Space Strategy. And so there's been a shift in the last 10 years where government, defence, industry has sort of grasped the nettle when it comes to the importance of space to things like defence, not just as sort of you know, a supporting element, but essential element of what it does. There's obviously a little bit more to this, but I think that history is sufficient for what I want to talk about today. In terms of how this history has been discussed, it's been relatively patchy, and this is a reflection of the fact that there aren't those sites of public imagination that there are in somewhere like the United States or Russia. There are no astronauts and there are no Mars rovers in Australia. And so it's harder for you know, the public to focus in on what Australia is doing. I'd also argue, as a sort of slightly miffed historian, that space is often seen as new. And I've had a number of people to ask me, why are you doing a history of this? It's, you know, it's not that old, and this is a new thing. Because people tend to focus on high technology, on the future when they talk about space. And you know, Star Trek is to blame here and all those sorts of things. Finally, I'd argue that Australians tend to abrogate a lot of their sort of sense of what we've done in space to the Americans. In the same way that we've gained access to American technical know-how and intelligence through, say, Pine Gap, we've also gained access to American myths and narratives. So I think we have a tiny sense of ownership when it comes to, say, the Apollo moon landings because of the great work of Sam Neill. So that's Australian space history. So how do people talk about history and this space history? And 
while I think Australia very much does its own thing, so much of the scholarship comes out of the United States. There's more of them, there's more space historians, there's more space stuff, so that's where the literature is. And so Roger Launius, who is a quite well-known space flight historian in America, he argues that there's these four narratives of American spaceflight history, so how Americans tend to see space. The first is the American triumph. Obviously, the moon landings is the sort of pinnacle of this. Then there's the counter-narrative of waste, the idea that that money should have been better spent on social programs. This is quite a common argument made in the 60s and ever since. There's the criticism by the right that this is a huge bureaucracy that doesn't need to exist. The money should be better spent on, if we are going to go to space, on the industry, and you see that playing out a little bit now. Also, the, you know, NASA's huge and full of scientists, and the right tends to not like them. And then there's conspiracy theories, which allowing isn't arguing is you know, in the same space as the other narratives, but is nonetheless a key thread there of how people talk about space. And I would argue that these somewhat map onto the way Australia talks about space, although ours are a little bit more instrumental and parochial and small when we talk about our narratives. We tend to not think about, say, our triumphs in terms of what they mean for the wider world. We're not the light on the hill. So the first narrative, the first way in which Australia, I would argue that Australians talk about space, is this idea of this triumph, is this idea of something like WRRE sat or the dish were a fantastic example of Australian achievement. And you see this narrative come out in a variety of different forms. The first quote there, which I won't read, is from an Australian Senate report from 2008, which sort of marks that shift towards Australia grasping the nettle of space. And essentially this is placing Australia's space history within that broader history of exploration and achievement. So you've got Captain Cook, and then they turn to the fourth nation to build and launch a satellite. See the plane and the numbers there. And then you've got the dish. That's being an important part of the Apollo mission. So this idea of Australian triumph and also buying into that sort of bigger American triumph. And when then... Minister for Industry and the other stuff that's tacked on. Michaela Cash announced the Space Agency in 2017. She refers to the dish as part of Australia's folklore. And indeed, Alice Gorman, who writes about, she does space archaeology. She's based it out at Flinders, really interesting stuff. She argues that the dish is Australia's only scientific icon. And I think I'd struggle to think of any other icons of Australian science. And maybe Howard Florey or people like that. So there's the idea that Australia has done great things in space, so the narrative of triumph. And then that maps onto the second narrative, which is that we missed the opportunity. So you can see how this played out with WRESAT. We launched a satellite, but then we didn't do anything with it. And so spaceflight advocates will often use this way of telling this story. We did all these great things in the 60s, and then we took the wrong path. And so Alice Gorman says space became a dirty word. After we retired her, she's referring to um, WRESAT there. There's... Kerry Doherty, who also writes a lot about space, she calls Australia and also ran, so we dwindled from a space leader. And Jeff Kingwell talks about voluntarily relinquishing our lead in space. Now, I think all these arguments tend to miss the reasons we were in space in the first instance, the fact that the Americans pay for everything. But this is quite a strong argument when it comes to how we talk about space. So they're the narratives. So I think that's, this shapes what government says, this shapes how people talk to government around space. There's other narratives. One of my next tasks is to go through all the submissions to, there's about three Senate inquiries into space industry and go through the submissions and just 
going through them on a superficial level, there's things like people referring to space as the new frontier for Australia. Australia has a great history of conquering new lands and things like that, which is scientists, right? Um, <laughs> this is why the imagination is important. So there's a lot of buying into a whole bunch of other things, but these are the, sort of the main ones. And I think it's important to understand these narratives because one of the great criticisms of Australia's space past is, and what we're doing now, is that we haven't been achieving what we should. And I'll talk a bit about inevitability in a moment when I talk about the rationales. So these narratives tie into how we talk about why we should do space. And going back to the American example, Roger Launius, and he's not the only one writing about this, but I think he writes the most clearly. He argues that there are certain ways the American government and people advocating for space flight have argued that they should go into space. Here are the reasons why. So human destiny and survival of the species, that we need to go into space for humans to continue as living in, in the universe. Geopolitics, national pride, it's an example of how great America is and there's an important sort of soft power element to that as well. National security, of course. America needs to hold the ultimate high ground, which is a really annoying phrase that doesn't make any sense. Economic competitiveness, there's money to be made in space, and that's even more important now. And scientific discovery. And again, these are very American in their broad and sort of more general scope that position America as doing good not just for their own country, but also for the wider world. These, again, somewhat map onto Australia. But before I want to go into that, I want to talk about one theme that threads itself both through the narratives and also through the rationales, and that's this idea of spaceflight being inevitable and also a really important example of human progress. And so this is where, and there's this fantastic literature in America about spaceflight and the public imagination, so people like Howard McCurdy and Alexander Geppert, who's quoted there, who show that the way we think about space is intrinsically tied to popular media, to intellectuals, to science fiction. Star Trek does actually have an influence on the way that space policy in America is constructed in the same way that space policy has an effect on Star Trek. Even the Space Force logo is reminiscent of Star Trek, which in turn, the Star Trek people took it from an American squadron from World War II that sort of started to deal with space stuff. So it's all sort of tied together. But this idea of inevitability in the American sense ties into this idea that humans are innate explorers, which is a bit of a naturalistic fallacy. Um, even if we have the urge to do something, doesn't mean that we should. And there's a lot more here, but I want to get to the rationales. In Australia, this argument from inevitability comes about not in terms of human beings and their innate desire to explore ideas of Western modernity. It comes from Australia being conceived as lagging behind the rest of the world. We've got America as the archetype of what you should do in space. So Australia is not anywhere near that yet, and so we're missing out. There's this idea that there is a single path to go in space that threads itself throughout a lot of the arguments for space. And then in many ways, people sort of match up to this linear idea of space progress and see Australia as lacking. Just quickly, the way in which Australia argues for space. And here I'm talking about not what the public thinks about space because that's a whole other really tricky question of sources. It's a really important question and there really haven't been very many public opinion polls on what Australia's think of space. The only one I really know of occurred in 67, which is quite interesting. I'm talking about conversations from and to government. So what government argues to the public, we should be doing in space, what they argue internally, and then how spaceflight advocates have argued to government for their own corners or for space in general. And I would argue that there are four rationales that Australia uses when we talk about, or these groups use when they talk about going to space. The first is national security. I think that should be a surprise to nobody. 
Pine Gap up the top there. So in the 1960s, you have Paul Hasluck and Alan Fairhall, <coughs> Foreign Minister and Defence Minister, writing within a cabinet submission, this was all classified secret at the time, that they would encourage US projects to be supported, quote, irrespective of their potential benefit to the Commonwealth. I think this says something really powerful about why Australia was involved in space. Here they are not talking about Pine Gap, although that was starting to be discussed at the time. They are talking about the picture down below, which is a space tracking centre outside of Canberra. Australians very much encouraged even civilian NASA presence in Australia in terms of that alliance, in terms of gaining better cooperation with the United States. And this threads itself throughout cabinet submissions, through government decisions, through inter interdepartmental committees, which manage this for most of the time. And then more publicly, you don't see it discussed in as clear terms, but when, say, Harold Holt opened the Honeysuckle Creek tracking station, which I showed a picture of before, he references the United States and the alliance Australia has with that and how much that reflects the US support of Australia and interest in Australia. And you also more recently have somewhere like the Australian Academy of Sciences talking about this need to develop a relationship with the United States. I would argue that the character of the national security justification for going to space has changed. So in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was about encouraging US presence here and to a lesser extent the United Kingdom. And now the conversation has changed to be around self-reliance. You're seeing in the last 10 years an interest in Australia having its own control over, say, its satellites or its access to satellites and the like. And this, I think, is driven by changes in technology because it is now possible for Australia to own its own satellite where it wasn't in the 60s in a meaningful way. The next rationale is technical and commercial benefits. And here you also share shift from an interest in technical benefits in, say, the 1960s to interest in commercial benefits now. So in the 1960s and 70s, you have someone like Richard Casey, Lord Casey, Australian diplomat and minister, arguing in an article in the Age newspaper that the American presence in terms of tracking stations in Australia contributed scientific know-how, and this was good for Australia. We have Harold Holt in that same Honeysuckle Creek speech emphasising the technological benefits, so weather satellites, survey, materials development and the like. And then you see a shift in the late 80s to be more about industry, and this comes about because there's a particularly important study that occurs in the 80s. Fast forward to today, Australia's interest in space, while we do have a, a civil space strategy, which is there on the right, this is an industry strategy. The space agency sits within the Department of Industry, and that strategy is top and tailed with space being important for humanity in Australia and the like, and then the, the majority of it is about 30,000 jobs, which reflects the Liberal government's interest in jobs and growth. So, but space is very much seen as instrumental, and you could almost sort of scratch away the space elements and just see this as an industry policy, not a space policy per se. The third or fourth rationales is this sort of nebulous idea of inspiration and values. Space is transformative, exciting, and cool. It's important to sell something like an industry policy about space. It's important to sell what are pretty boring ground stations and links and satellites and the like. This sort of language infuses arguments for space, but is also used instrumentally as well. Space, and this has been going on since the 1960s, is seen as a way to encourage people to take up STEM degrees and also STEM careers. Now, there's a lot of literature on whether this actually works, and I personally think that if you want to encourage people to do STEM, maybe spend money on STEM rather than sending things into space, but who am I to say? But 
the Australian Space Agency's charter includes inspiration as one of its seven goals. And very much it then goes on to explain how important this is to encouraging people to take up these jobs and thereby make money for Australia. And the final rationale is a little bit of a departure from the way that other spaceflight historians have talked about the rationales. I want to talk about a rationale against spaceflight because I think this is, given Australia's space past and our sort of missed opportunities, quote unquote, the rationale that space is too expensive and not worth it for Australia is a really common one and a really powerful one. So you have Prime Minister Menzies in 1961 writing to the British when they're asking him to be involved in Woomera. And he, in stating Australia's position, which is, no, nah, we don't want to spend the money, he says Australia has more important things to do than space research. I think that's pretty much a direct quote. And instead he wants to spend the money on infrastructure and universities. And his argument is that Australia can't hope to compete with the United States, so why should we bother? We can buy things off the shelf. And you see this play out throughout the next couple of decades, right up until John Howard's space engagement policy in 2003, in which he argues that there's no reason for us to be self-sufficient. Instead, Australia should buy off the shelf and negotiate cooperative agreements or just buy when we need to. And so every time Australia, up until recently, Australia has bought, say, a satellite or a capability, it's not been the start of some new space program. It's instead just been because we need a particular capability. Connected to that is this sort of public idea that a space is too expensive. And so when the space agency was announced in 2017, 2018, you see people like David Littleproud having to defend spending the money on space, which is actually quite a small amount in Australia. The War Memorial has more money than the space agency. But he has to defend it in terms of why aren't we spending this on drought? And so that's a powerful argument as well, which is not unique to Australia. So I'd argue that those are the four ways in which we talk about space, talk about justifying going to space in Australia. And just to finish up, I think it's important that we understand the narratives and also the rationales because it allows us to unpick a lot of the messaging around space. That idea of the missed opportunity is such a powerful one. The idea of inevitability is a powerful one. And it leads to this question of why has Australia not had a space agency until 2018? Why have we not done more? Why are we lagging behind other countries? We have so much more to do. And by looking at those narratives and those rationales, we're able to be a little bit more nuanced in answering that question, saying, well, we actually were aiming for different things. Maybe we should ask the question of what have we actually missed out on by not engaging in spaceflight in, say, the 1970s, compared to, say, somewhere like America? Who Were we willing, and was the public willing, to spend that amount of money, rather than sort of blithely top and tailing our, say, civil space strategy with Australia has a great history in space and now we're continuing on from that. That's a recipe for administrative disaster and also sort of policy disaster as well, um, just to, to go in hard. <laughs> and thank you for all this, for everyone listening to me. That's sort of two articles put together, so hopefully that wasn't too complex. Great. Thanks, Thanks Tristan. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.